Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Fiona, I'm so happy you could join us. Lovely to be here with you wonderful women again. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about what your life has been like in pandemic and if you have any ideas for writers who are pitching their books right now? Oh, that's a whole lot. Well, life in pandemic, do you know, I'm slightly embarrassed about how in how enjoyable life has been for me. I've been quite lucky because I've always worked from home and I have a very cute little home office set up. I moved house, what, about five days before the lockdown here in Oregon. Oh, wow. So I had the chance to set up my little office, which is at the bottom of the garden, looking out over my veggie patch. And I work for Transatlantic, which is an agency where our head office is in Canada. But here's the thing. We went completely remote five years ago. So everybody, including our royalties and our contracts people, everyone works from home. We all Zoom. And I've been Zooming with my clients from the get-go because I have clients in New Zealand and Australia and Canada and the UK as well as here right across the US. So, you know, my actual day-to-day life hasn't changed that much. Mm. What has been different, I suppose, initially was making space in the evenings instead of going out, you know, finding other things to do and reconnecting with reading for pleasure as well. I, mm. I, I, I read a ton of detective novels, which I really like. There's a reason why I don't represent adult fiction. And I kind of keep it separate so that I can always have something to read for pleasure and keep the bar high. I am reading fantastic series by a guy called Mick Heron. And they are kind of like, oh, it's such a good idea. It's, it's, it, his series is set it's kind of a spy series, but it's for the failed James Bonds, the ones who are too violent or too slow or for whatever reason they didn't fit in. And of course, you can never fire a spy because they know too much. So instead of being in the flashy headquarters it's set in London of MI6, they're in this really, really crappy suburban house altogether, solving the mysteries and solving the spy problems that no one else wants to do, all the cold cases. <laughs> And that then, sounds like perfect oh, escapism. It's so good. <laughs> and the guy is Mick Heron, H-E-R-R-O-N. And it's called the Slow Horse series. They call them the Slow Horses, <laughs> the Failed Spies. Oh, it's such a good idea. It's one of those where it's not just a high concept that you love. You know, you totally get it. Failed spies. What do you do with them? Um, especially <laughs> oh in the world of James Bond. But but um, sounds amazing. They're really good, and there's six of them. So as soon as you finish one, you can go to the library and download the next one. <laughs> well, I think that's really great because, of course, not everyone can be James Bond. I mean, he is a ten out of ten in like every area, right? <laughs> so oh yeah, oh yeah. Some of them more ten out of ten than others, but I am a big Daniel Craig fan. <laughs> And so what have you been doing for fun? I think you mentioned an unusual setup that we'd love to hear about. Do you know, actually, I've got to say my life has been pretty busy. And yesterday I had a whole bunch of 
things happen. But one of the best ones was karaoke. And there's a group of us, one of my friends who's immune compromised had a birthday. And so we all logged on to Zoom karaoke, and which is run by our local little karaoke bar. And we all got bottles of wine and we, and we sang our hearts out, which sounds awesome. And it was, except there was a very slight Zoom time lag for each person. So we all came together for a rousing finale of chorus of Bohemian Rhapsody with everybody flat, fractionally running at a different speed. You can only imagine how wonderful it was. (laughs) And and of course, we had the cameras. And because we all have quarantine hair, the head banging was fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm just always amazed at just how adaptive humans are when it comes to, you know, like, we're going to figure out a way to have that connection. And we're going to figure out a way to find that laughter and even during difficult times. So Thank you for that idea. I think I'm going to use it for sure. Oh, do. Oh, it's so fun. (laughs) Yeah, we've been very big on socially distanced bike rides. A lot of us have bad paddle boards. So, you know, Portland is a very beautiful place and we all trek down and paddle socially distanced um, flotillas. It's, it's, we're doing, we're making the best of it. Very good. So let's, let's kind of move back in time, Fiona. Tell us how you got started in publishing. Oh wow. Well, I I was a bookseller back back in my teens. I went to work for the local bookstore, which is a children's bookshop. And so I really never I moved straight from reading children's books to selling them. And then I was very lucky. I I wrote to a whole bunch of publishers saying, "Can I come and work for you?" just because I I didn't have any connections and at college I was told back in those days, you had to have a a relative or a connection in publishing. And I was living in a remote rural place. We didn't even get the equivalent of Publishers Weekly. So I just wrote out on spec to everybody, every publisher I could think of from books in the library. And one or two of them came back to me and said, there's this new thing called YA. Uh, in, in, in this shows you how old I am in America and they're beginning to publish these books aimed at teenagers and in our bookshop in the Cotswolds in the teenage section we had Jane Eyre and Captain Hornblower I mean we had adult books that we thought would make work and so these publishers were cottoning on and they said well we need someone who's pretty much a teenager to read these and i just graduated university. So I I used to read them for £30, which is what, uh, that was the best one, sort of fif- between 15 and £30 a novel. So mm. less than 50 bucks a novel and write reports. And a lot of those books went on to be the very first YA books that were published in the UK. So wow. it was a super exciting way to be in on the bottom rung, really. And then I went to work for the... Publishing News, which was the British equivalent of, you know, Publishers Weekly over here. And that was great because it was in the 80s. And so an awful lot of publishing was done over lunch and over parties. So I used to go (laughs) to a lot of parties and meet. I met Terry Jones from Monty Python at a publishing party. I met all kinds of interesting people. Of course, you know, I was less than nothing to them, but it was a really great way of getting an overview of the publishing life. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, that's so nice. I know. I just want to go. I, I was like, I want to, I want to go back in time with Fiona. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Oh, it was so fun. It really was. You know, this was back when they had huge budgets because a lot of the publishing houses then were owned by tire companies and rubber companies who had them as a kind of, I guess, front for entertaining. So you, Duran Duran played at one publishing party. (laughs) And I was just there as, you know, super junior publishing journalist. But it was, yeah, nowadays... You don't even get a sandwich. It's it. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's changed days, a lot. The agents were wined and dined, and now no, not so much. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about your focus on children's books? How did you know you wanted to focus there, and what do you think makes it different from other forms of publishing for both the oh, agent and the author? That is such a good question. So I'm slightly ashamed to say I have never professionally done anything except children's books. I love children's books. I love the way, I I think for me, growing up, children's books provided an escapism from life that was a little complicated and not always easy. And that form of magical escapism and be able to provide it for a child has remained with me my whole life. And so I've never really wanted to go into publishing adult books or representing them. I do represent a little bit, just in areas that super interest me. So I represent a dog, an animal behaviorist, because as Julie and and Jessica know, I I, I love my pets. And so I, I represent a fantastic animal behaviorist who's just written a book on the science of why dogs love us so much called Wag. It's fantastic. She's She's called Zazy Todd, and if you've got and if you've got dogs, you should have that book. But and now she's doing cats next. But otherwise, the thing that's magical for me that if you ask any adult about a book that really, really meant a lot to them, usually it's a kid's book. That incredible connection that you make. What makes children's books special for an agent or a publisher is that you. If you're writing books for publishing books for adult but adult readers, you're reading books that you like, you connect with, you see a market, and you give them to someone who's selling them to someone who looks a bit like you, probably. With children's books, you do this magical, incredible thing, particularly with first person, but with YA, with with middle grade, where you persuade a child through literature that another child is talking to them directly without any adult interference. When you think that writers are doing that, it's an extraordinary and magical thing that we manage to do. And so that's why I do it. You're, you're, you're doing this magical tightrope walking, which when it works, is a, is a transformative experience for the child who reads it at the end. I think that's so true. When I, when I was teaching, you know, and I taught all the different ages, but my favorite teaching memory is watching a kid in math class obsessed by a book, not a reader, you know, yes. the, first book of the first book that just encompassed this child. And, and he just could not, I think it was the Goosebumps books by, by R.L. Stein. And oh, yeah. he was like, he had never been a reader. And, and I think it was fourth grade. And this book just you know, it just spoke to him and he was interested and he was so invested. And finally I was like, part of me was like, I should tell him to stop reading that book, you know, but because 
because it took over his soul. Mm. You know, there's something mm. about that. There's there's an exchange there that adults don't have. And you're mm. right. And I think I think that books imprint on kids' souls and their stories imprint. And the way you said that was so beautiful. How do you keep yourself in that kid like kid like perspective, Fiona? How do you keep oh, that magic well, going in your own? Do you know it's point really, of view? it's really not that hard because I'm lucky in that I represent authors and I'm reading manuscripts and submissions. And when you get to a book that's got that immersive quality, that you know when that feeling you get when actually you don't you you like the characters in the story more than you like the people in real life. <laughs> that happens to me all the time. Um, and and when you're engaged like that, it it, it it's not difficult. You you just love being with the world and with these characters. And because I'm an editor, if I start off like that and then I kind of take a step back and I'm like, oh, something's taken me out of the book, then I want to dig in and fix it. So that's the editor side of me. So I've never really found it difficult to get immersed. In fact, funnily enough, I was taking on a new client the other day, potentially, and we were talking about formative books. And I said, oh, I, I was a Narnia girl. I spent a whole year, around about seven years old, where my real world was Narnia and the rest of everything else going on was was really not the real world. And and this this guy I was chatting to, he was like, so was I. And I was oh. like, wow, maybe we were there at the same time. And I was like, I was the mermaid. And he went, oh, I was Prince Caspian. And I thought, well, oh. that says the whole difference between us right there. <laughs> I was just a background mermaid. And I'm very happy to be that. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about how publishing is, advice is different for people writing in the children's space? I think I give different advice to people giving writing for YA than writing for middle grade or picture book. I think... The principal thing with picture books is that you're dealing, you want that connection with the reader, but you've got a whole bunch of things with picture books that you don't have with adult books. So you're connecting with a reader who may be less than six years old. So they haven't had all the experiences. They've had a certain number of experiences, which is why picture books cover those same experiences over and over again. New sibling, first day of school, and so on. So if you're a picture book writer, and often people are inspired to write by their grandchildren or their children, you need to be sure that you're covering what I call those sparkle moments, those, those, those new, those, those delightful moments that, that are milestones in a child's life, but, but reaching them in a way that hasn't been covered before or covering them in a new and delightful way, because there are so many books out there. And if you're writing a debut, you've got to make your book stand out. One of the things that, that you hit head on as a picture book writer, is, as a debut one, is that a lot of people going to buy a picture book for their first grandchild or godchild head straight to The Very Hungry Caterpillar. Or yeah. Winnie the Pooh, because you want to give the child the experience that you had that was so fantastic. So you have that thirty-second moment to grab that grab them before they go and pick up the very hungry caterpillar. So that's where someone brilliant like John Classen comes up with something really new and original. Or the pigeon when that first came, yeah. in, you just thought, oh, so good. So th those are things that that you need to think about with picture books. The other things that are different with picture books is that you are dealing with a whole bunch of gate 
gatekeepers before you reach the child. And the really best picture books work for those. So first of all, you've got to hit the very tired, exhausted agent who's maybe read 20 picture books that day. And, you know, so I talk a lot about surprise and delight, and I'll talk about that uh, in, in my class. I love picture books that at the beginning of the story, you can't quite predict how it'll end. So I've mentioned mm. Moe Willems's Pigeon. The book is called Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. You say mm. to kids, how's this book going to end? And most of them go, the pigeon's going to drive the bus. <laughs> and does he? No, heck, he does not. He's found a bigger dream. So I love books where you can't predict how they're going to end, because otherwise, why are you reading them? Except for, you know, lovely lyrical poetry, but you want something with some momentum. So surprise and delight will get you past the agent gatekeeper and possibly the publisher gatekeeper. But then you've got to get past the bookseller, the parent, and finally to the child. So so you're, you're working. This is why no one can ever say picture books are easy. You're working in this tiny little framework, almost like a poem in length, and you're reaching all these people before you reach the child. It's an incredible art form. Can you talk a little bit about the chapter book and early reader market? I feel like people writing in those areas don't usually get as much love as those writing in picture books or middle grade. I can talk a little bit to it, but chapter books, it seems to me a very special skill. And contemporary everyday stories are hard to sell in chapter books right now. People like things with a bit of a superhero quality or a little bit of series energy. I'm thinking... What have I sold in chapter book? I tend to, because I love the picture book area, I tend to sell for the very youngest easy reader chapter books. And they're almost, the trick of it is the vocabulary is more limited than a picture book, but the subject matters needs to be a little bit more sophisticated. So they're super hard, but humor, everybody's looking for humor. You cannot go wrong with chapter books that are funny. Do you have any tips on how to be funny? Do you know, I think you've got it or you haven't. The good thing is yeah. that, the good thing is that most people are pretty funny, I find. Yeah, that's true. I don't think you can force it. I think do you know what I would do with if if it was one of my clients, I'd start off with what makes you laugh and work from there. What makes me laugh at the moment is one of my friends has got a little boy, Oz, who is just the best kid. And he's at the age of knock knock jokes. So every time I see him, he goes, knock, knock. And I go, who's there? And I do really carefully crafted ones, like, who's there? And I go, Abby. And he goes, who? And I go, Abby, birthday to you. (laughs) That is so funny. And he looks at me and, and, and and I go, knock, knock. And he goes, who's there? And he goes, kangaroo. And I go, kangaroo who? And he goes, kangaroo on a roof in a kayak. <laughs> and it's just the funniest thing. <laughs> oh, kids are kids are like I, and I guess that's and like Fiona. I was just thinking, listening to you laugh, and I was just, I was like, you belly laugh like like kids do. Like you actually encompass that. I could hear that in your laughter, which is so much fun. <laughs> oh god! Oh god! Back when I when I last worked in an office, they called it the Kenshaw cackle. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's amazing. And also, Fiona, I know a lot of people talk about voice in middle grade. What other oh, requirements do you see for middle grade right now? Um, and I talk a lot about voice because it because it's the magical thing. I think I've mentioned the, this before that that editors uh, can fix plot. They can fix pace. There's an awful lot we can fix, but we can't fix voice. Voice is the unique, magical fingerprint. And here's, I, I've been doing this quite a lot recently, actually, with, with manuscript wishlist clients. I've been, people have been sending me their query letters quite a lot recently and asking me to fix their query letters. And so I, I start chatting just casually and I go, before we start, just tell me what your book's about. And they start telling me and they tell me why they wrote it, because I always ask what the light bulb moment is that inspired it. And they start telling me and I, I should start running a recorder, actually. And at the end of it, we stop and I go, you've just told me you've just pitched me your book absolutely perfectly. And often we're on screen and they just look confused and they go, did I? And I was like, yes. And by the way, None of the characters you mention in this are in your query letter, which you have sweated over. And the, um, you've told me that he's spending time in the kitchen cooking and cleaning. Yet when you told me that when he pitched it to me verbally, you told me it's about warring nations. So let's dig into that. So so voice, I, I can't tell you how important it is to just just go back and reimagine exactly why you wanted to write this book. So important. Once you've nailed that voice thing, which is your own personal fingerprint, that's all it is. It's the reason why you wrote this book and why you wrote this book now. And if you can explain that to me, then I'm going to be captivated. I can tell you. I think right now, because we're in the middle of a pandemic, people are shying away from publishing very, very I'm not going to say heartfelt because people are publishing heartfelt books. I think people are looking for books with happiness, positivity, positive outcomes. That's not the same as a happy ending. We're talking about mm. hope. And uh, the, I think every book that I'm looking for now has a sense of hope and triumph over difficulty in it. Because, because a editors are only human and agents are only human and we're all struggling in different ways. I'm sitting here on my own, realizing that I haven't touched any living creature apart from my cats since February. That's mm. really weird. We do do foot bumps occasionally, distance foot bumps within my bubble. And I've got other friends who, you know, they've got three kids there I, and, and one of my clients. And she's down the bottom of the yard trying to get a little bit of shared bandwidth. And she's had no privacy for three months. And so I think what we're looking for is that immersive quality, a little bit of escapism, a little bit of and definitely hope and triumph. And that comes in different ways. It comes in fantasy, parallel worlds where magical things are happening. It comes definitely in magical realism where a little bit of magic, suddenly discovering you're a witch when you thought you were a private investigator. I don't know. I just read that blurb the other day and I thought, oh, what a good idea. And, and even just the day-to-day, -day, dealing with, with different experiences, I think that's super important. I'm, I'm reading, I've been learning a lot myself about how to be a better ally in the last few weeks. And I'd love stories about that because I think that's something that's super interesting and definitely at middle grade. 
Don't we all care so much at middle grade? I think we care passionately at middle grade and young teen in a very pure black and white way that we we never revisit that again, really, do we? Well, I think there's something interesting. The middle grade reader, for me, you know, like if there's a real sweet spot where you have these children that know a great deal about the world, but deve- developmentally are still really in their bodies. You know, yes. they're really feeling their bodies. And then once, you know, like puberty hits and the YA kind of mentality, they all kind of lose it. And that's what makes YA kids, like I love like that age group too. Like, you know, like a, give me a good 14 year old boy to teach, you know, it's like huh. crazy. But they're, the middle grade reader is so smart. They're so grounded. They are immersive and they don't have a whole lot of, I mean, some of them have a lot of worries, but they don't have a whole lot. Like their awareness is in a place where they can move the awareness from what's going on into something else. Like you talked about earlier. And so I do, I think it's a really special time. And I think that you really encapsulated that beautifully. And I've been thinking a lot about power. And I think most picture books are about power struggles, really good ones. And I think middle grade, there's a reason why, some of the most popular middle grade removes all the parents. <laughs> and we, we have all those orphans, chosen one orphans and, and magical adventures in, on summer, on your bicycles in summer. It, it, getting rid of, especially now with lockdown, you, you, you have so little power as a middle grader. So you use, you use books to explore what would happen if you did have autonomy and power and also to learn a little bit about what it what it's like to be powerless and find power that's true they're with their parents all the time yes and you think of all those books even 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 middle grade like matilda you know she's got she's got horrible horrible controlling guardians and she figures out a way to to deal with them and you know, that's a very pure middle grade experience. I, mm. I I love those. I would love more of those, actually. I was just thinking of the Penderwicks, how like what, what a yes. perfect summer read for a kid that's in quarantine right now and to how those girls build autonomy within each other and, and their world is it's fascinating. Mm. Yes, exactly. I remember my fifth grade teacher having us all sit on the bright orange 70s carpet and, you know, reading (laughs) Matilda to us. And when we got to the point where, well, I don't really want to spoil it, but something really extraordinary happens that gives her more power in the world and more hope in the world. And when that happened, I just remember grinning because I didn't realize a book could do all of those things. Yes. Oh, Jessica, that is exactly why we read middle grade. Oh, mm-hmm. that feeling. And here's the really cool thing. I get to have that as an adult every week. <laughs> I have the best job in the world, isn't it? Is there, can you give the um, listeners, do you have any tips on how you build tension for middle grade specifically? Oh, that's a good one. I think what I'm seeing a little bit is over-explaining. And so it's, I I always think of, you know, it's sort of Hitchcock type writing. Early on in the book, people go, she walked to the door. She felt her stomach churning inside her. She put her hand on the door. She turned the handle. Her, her, uh, what is it? Bile rose in her throat. Her (laughs) breathing was faster. The door creaked. Now that works if you want to slow 
everything down. You see what I was doing there? The pace really slowed down. You're with them every minute. But if you're doing that in the first 10 pages, before we know the character, what you're doing is slowing it right down before we care enough about the main character to stick with it. So I would say that your first 10 pages of your book, first 15 pages, it's all about making sure that we love the character so much. We find them quirky. We found something that we care about. And when I say love, I don't mean you have to like them. I mean, you have to actually care about them. I'm, I'm a big fan of the anti-hero, someone who's, you know, a little bit obnoxious, but you can't help find, wanting to read more about them. But if you're overwriting and you're putting a little bit too much physical detail in your story, what that does is it pushes the reader back. It's slowing everything down at a time when you want to be leaning in and learning more about the character. So I would say I was actually reading The Hunger Games because I was critiquing a book. It was YA the other day, which had a lot of this, uh, uh, too much physical detail. And someone told me I didn't use enough mentor texts. And I'm like, oh, I hate using mentor texts because everybody has different books that mean a lot to them. So I find mentor texts a little difficult. But I thought, you know, why not The Hunger Games? Because she she is so good that I didn't even realize I was reading first person present when I was reading it. I was just turning the pages so fast. And she she does, it's all action verbs for the first 10 pages. There's no internal monologue at all. It's all action. And she does really clever things. Like when you first meet Gail, he's got a loaf of bread with an arrow through it. And he goes, I just shot dinner today. <laughs> <laughs> It's like six words and it tells you everything. And you're not there creeping along, shooting the arrow with him. He just provides this loaf of bread with an arrow in it. Brilliant writing. Brilliant. So, I, yeah, I segue to YA, but the same thing, even more true of middle grade, I think. And and I think that's something we talk a lot about at our meetings that we have with, with writers at the Mansfield Academy. Often it is, it is like, the just right amount and how you get the just right amount. And that's so difficult to teach and to, you know, as a writer, try to like attempt, like, when do you know when it's the right amount, you know? And it's, it's, it's almost Ooh. like, I, I feel like, you know, you're talking about the arrow. I feel like it's like, you can do it and do it and do it and do it. And then like, if it's like axe throwing, you'll finally get the axe in the in, in the right spot, you know? Like it'll finally go into I did that before COVID. I went axe throwing. I was awful. <gasps> no, I, I, I did it too. It's I, really hard. It's really hard. But like once you figure out the slip of the wrist, it's so easy, right? And so I think that writers who've been writing a long time or writers who've rewritten their book four or five times, you know, like you hear that. Well, I rewrote that ten times. Oh. You know, I, I, I can speak to that. I'm going to talk about one of my middle grade writers, and I'm sure she won't mind me mentioning it because I love working with her. Well, I love all my clients. I, I'm very lucky. They are all very awesome. But Roseanne Parry, she, she, her book, A Wolf Called Wanda, some of you will know, and it hit the New York Times bestseller list and was there for six months and still pops up. This was, this was a book that was turned down by... 40 publishers and everybody was going animal books don't sell and it's now sold in 12 countries and been wow. on the new york times bestseller list but she gave me her first draft 
last year of um, the companion book, which comes out in September called A Whale of the Wild. It's, oh God, girls, it's so lovely. It's um, set in the Salish Sea just outside of Seattle. And it's about a pod of orcas. And she, from the orcas point of view, and she recreates the whole underwater world. And it's, it, and it's almost like fantasy because you've got to make you see what it's like to be underwater. And, and telling time by the stars and the moon and what the sounds of things happen sound like because there's a big problem with the sound of the heavy heavy ships in in the Salish Sea and the orcas you know they use echo sounding so if there's a really loud ship they can't hear each other so they get separated from their pods and and oh gosh it's so magical because it's a completely matriarchal society so the young female is going to eventually be the leader of the pod following her grandmother and her great-grandmother because they live a very long time. And so so there's no middle grade getting rid of the parents when you said it with the pod of orcas. She's got her parents and her grandparents and her great-grandparents right there. So this is about the orca who makes a mistake on the first time she's leading the pod. Wow. And she loses confidence and feels like maybe she can't do it. And then her little brother gets confused by the noises of the boats and he loses the main pod. So she's got to rescue him. Oh, it's just gorgeous. And I've got to tell you, Roseanne has rewritten that book so many times. And the first time she wrote it, she didn't get the voice. And mm. I had to go back to my New York Times bestselling author and go, I'm really worried about this. I'm not getting the voice. And she took two more goes to connect with the voice for me. And then I sent it to her editor, who, of course, was under huge pressure from the sales team to push this one forward really fast. And she she agreed with me. And Roseanne rewrote that book in first person and then back in third person. And she she rewrote the ending. And this is someone who you would think had got it made just you know she's got that best-selling book she's 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 won prizes but she god she's the revision queen and I see her doing that and it's now in first person by the way and extraordinary and she went up with the illustrator it's an illustrated beautifully throughout with black and white illustrations and they kayak the Salish Sea just to get the authenticity right oh that's amazing Mm. Yeah, what a story. And I think, I think for the listeners, I think it's so important that, you know, people know that even once you've had success, it's still hard. (laughs) You know, that it's each, each project is its own beast and its own, you know, living organism. You know, I I cannot wait to read that book. It sounds amazing. is amazing but here's the thing each this is the really privileged bit of as an agent I can still see some of the really really great moments of that first draft which was clunky and not working but they've still translated into the they're still there each Mm. iteration grows on the shoulders of the previous iteration so so while revision does feel hard it, it 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 is magical watching that book transform and I know that there were several light bulb moments for for Roseanne on the way so so I think the secret of it while it is hard is to really enjoy the process and see that see how you can make those shiny moments come together it's a little bit like you know tending an overgrown garden and making sure your rose bushes 
overwhelmed by the weeds, I think. Mm-hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about your event next week? So this will be Tuesday, July 28th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 5.30 p.m. Pacific. And we're both on Pacific right now, Fiona. We're um, so tell, <laughs> So tell us a little bit about what you'll be talking about. I'm going to talk about the sparkle moments of picture books and making those really resonate so that your picture book sings. We've talked about how these sparkle moments are written about a million times. And I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the recent picture books that that I've represented and, and some that I don't represent and how they tackle the sparkle moments. And I'm going to talk about pacing in picture books and plots and subplots. Subplots in picture books can be awesome because you can put them entirely in the pictures. And so that's, we'll talk a little bit about illustration notes, how some editors love them, how they don't, some they don't. And I love um, that they're so controversial. <laughs> oh, don't. Oh, I have a story. I don't know if I should tell this. Ah, I'm going to, I'll try and be discreet. I have an author who loves illustration notes. She, she, she hands in texts which are about 400 words of text and 600 words of illustration notes. And, and she does them with footnotes. And they're so bloody funny. Maureen Fergus is her name. And she's so this particular book, which comes out in September, I think, is called, what's it called? Glory on Ice. And it's about a vampire. He's thousands of years old. He's tried every hobby going. He's tried water aerobics. He's tried Zumba. He's tried he's tried everything. And he's and 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 he gets and he's very, very weary until he comes across ice hockey and he sees it he sees a poster for little league ice hockey and they're, they're called the warriors or something and it's all like we're gonna slam them so he goes this is my kind of thing i can use my vampire skills <laughs> and he turns up and of course he's he's a thousand year old vampire and there are all these six-year-olds learning hockey and it's and he is no good at it because he's on ice <laughs> and when she sent me this text it was full of the funniest funniest flipping footnotes I've ever read and I sent it and she had a new editor at Knopf and the editor is not a big fan of footnotes so she took them all out (laughs) anyway we um the the illustrator happened to be a friend of mine and who lives locally so we went out to tea and he was chatting and he was like I've got all these ideas for this and it turned out the ideas were almost exactly what she would have put in the footnotes oh that's wonderful so here's the magical thing if you're under her picture book it's funny so here's the magical thing if your picture book is working how you want it to work actually the need for people think they've got to tell the illustrator what to do and they really don't so on middle grade I am I'm going to talk a bit about pacing it seems to me that I used to do a lot of talks about voice and lots of people are doing talk about voice talks about voice now so I'm going to talk about pace I'm not going to talk about rules do you know I only discovered the rule of three last month Hmm. did you know about the rule of three I didn't know about the rule of three. Well, there's so I many versions of it. Which version of it are you? <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, I only discovered about it because an editor I admire, Francis Gilbert, was tweeting about how everybody should break the rule of three. So I had to Google the rule of three. And here's the thing. I think it's because of being a British editor for many years. And we work so differently. 
we're essentially all rather renegade and law-breaking quietly and so we're not big on the rules and I often I, I have found this actually when I was working as a publisher I was often <laughs> I was not terribly good necessarily as part of a team because I was often breaking rules that I didn't even know was there so <laughs> you know all those hidden rules that you have when you work in an office I didn't even know they were there so I'm going to talk about what I'm going to talk about is listening to your story and how your story will tell you what it needs and how to listen to the tells within your own story rather than following a bunch of rules from people. I'm also going to talk a little bit about how to make the most out of your critique partners so that they can help you in your journey to find your story rather than giving you a bunch of conflicting advice where you start trying to please everybody and lose the sense of your sense of self. And within that, we'll talk about diving into the characters, diving into the pace and finding the magic in your story that makes you want to go back and revise. Totally applicable for chapter books in middle grade. We'll talk about roaring with laughter at chapter books. Well, Fiona, thank you so much. I can't wait for next week. If you'd like to join us, you can head to manuscriptacademy.com slash Fiona to get your ticket. And Fiona, really, thank you so much for being so thoughtful and fun and bringing to us all of that awareness of what kids really need. So I appreciate it. No, thank you. It's such a pleasure. I burble on. Fiona, where, where can people find you online? The agency website is www.transatlanticagency.com. My submissions guidelines are there and I will be opening a special query manager tab, especially for submissions that come from the Manuscript Academy after my talk. We'll put the link in the show notes. How about that? Fantastic. The month of September, I will only be open for queries from writers of color and indigenous oh, writers. Okay. Thank you so much, okay. Fiona. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.